0: You are listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit DiscoveryBristol.com. Good morning. So uh, if you are watching at home, we are heading into a time of communion. So head on to your kitchen and grab something. For those of you that are here, I want to share something cool. As I was reading through the scripture, uh, we're we're going through the life of David, right? And so last week, uh, Elliot looked at David, the relationship of David and Jonathan, uh, Saul's son. Saul was the king. Saul was the one that was supposed to be leading the nation. And David has already been anointed to be the new king. There's every reason in the world that David and Jonathan shouldn't get along. Jonathan should be committed to his father, committed to the plan that he would soon be king. But instead, the love that, that they, they had, this bond, over superseded any supposed to's and anything that they were doing. And so Jonathan cared greatly for David. And there was a point that Jonathan even gives David a sign that you need to flee. My dad's going to kill you. And so that's in chapter 20 of First Samuel, and we've been going through David's life. And, and if you're following along, there's this chapter we're going to be looking at David and Samuel, uh, David and Saul here in a few minutes in in the 24th chapter of that book. But in between chapter 20 and 24, there's this story that David's on the run. He's a wanted man. He's a he's a fugitive. And so there's a reward, a bounty out for his head. People would quickly turn him into the king out of fear from the king, out of just a desire to get the reward. And so David's been hiding out during the day. He's traveling at night. He, he's a fugitive on the run. He's hungry. He's worn out. His life is chaos. And so, in the midst of that, he comes to this little town of Nob, N-O-B, or Noob. I don't know how you know locals would pronounce it, right? And so they go, and they're in the town of Noob, and there's Abimelech, and he's the priest. And David comes in, and he—you can just picture the story that the door in the back creaks open, right? And he sees Abimelech up front, and he sees a figure come and just dart in. And he comes to the back, and he quickly sees who it is. It's the fugitive. David's well-known, he's the one that's killed Goliath, he's this mighty victor, he's killed thousands in war. Everybody knows what David looks like, and here he is, he's, he's dirty, he's worn out, he's visibly hungry, worried, scared. And Abimelech comes up to him and David assures him, I'm here in peace, I'm not gonna cause any problems, but do you have anything to eat? And I love this story because Abimelech says, the only thing we have here to eat is the bread of presence." Right, it's also called the show bread. And, and what it was is it was this loaf of bread. There's actually 12 of them that would have been at the front of the temple at where the sacrifices are made. And this bread was made, shaped in a U and with the two ends coming together to represent where God and mankind meet. And so there was 12 of these loaves to represent the 12 tribes of, of Jacob and to represent more importantly, the complete family of God, that this bread was to represent everybody was present at the table everybody was represented where God would meet them. And he says, the only bread we have is is the bread of presence, the the show bread. And and in Leviticus 24, it says that no one can eat of the the sacrifices given to God except for the priests. And so it was a law that that you couldn't eat that. David's not a priest. There's no reason that David should be able to eat this. But Abimelech, the the priest, sees how worn out he is, sees how tired he is, sees that he's on the run and, and sees that God's presence is with him. And Abimelech sees this, and even though the law says no one can eat it from Leviticus 24, there's also a law in Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. So Abimelech takes the bread, the show bread, and gives it to David to eat. And I love this story as we go to this time of communion, as this kind of transition time and we're going to come into communion and then we're going to come back into worship and then we're going to dive more into the text in chapter 24. But this time, this little chapter talks about this, this show showbread, and I love it because we see Jesus, he calls himself the bread of life. and and I see so many similarities in this showbread, in this bread of presence to Jesus, right? That the fact that it's where God meets. The two ends are pointed inward to where God meets mankind. And when Jesus came to earth, he was Emmanuel, God with us. That there were the 12 of these loaves and around the room, we have communion stations and there's 12 of these loaves to represent all the tribes of Israel, to represent all the people that Jesus came to die for, you and me. The bread was set apart. It was holy. Jesus was holy. And the bread was a sacrifice. Jesus was a sacrifice for us. And so this morning as we go to the time of communion, we have stations around the room. And and I want to encourage you to grab one of the little cups with juice and and the bread that's in that juice. Don't take from the show bread because I I made this two days ago and it probably isn't all that good. Um, But it's on the tables to represent and remind you. This is a time that we're in God's presence. This is a time that we're coming together. This is a time that Jesus died for all of us. He was a holy sacrifice. Because of that, we can come into his presence right now. Throughout this morning at communion, worship, as we study the word, and all throughout this morning, I pray that we would be like this showbread, that we would be able to meet God, Face to face. So let me pray for you right now, and then, and then you're free to go to the tables, to go to get communion, to go be near the presence of God in the showbread. Be reminded that we are in His presence this morning. If you'll pray with me, Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, we thank you for your death on the cross. Jesus, you were a sacrifice, a holy, pure sacrifice for all of us because of that, we're able to come in your presence. We're able to come face to face with you. God, the bread of presence represents you coming to the people, and more importantly, that is what Jesus did. We thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for that love. And God, at this time of communion, let us just reflect on that, that we are in your holy, glorious presence this morning. As we go back into the worship, as we, we sing of your blessing, As we dive into your word, God, let us not forget you are here with us. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. In your name, amen. So uh, sometimes things don't go as we have planned. Right? This is where David finds himself. This life is not what he thought it would be when, when, uh, when Samuel comes and anoints him as a teenager that he's going to be keen. He thinks that, wow, everything's going to be different. What does it look like to be keen? And then life is not what he thought it would be. I don't know, I'm sure you guys have been there too, that, that life just didn't work out like you thought it would, right? That there's times that you thought you would have kids by now, or, or you would have different kids by now, or, or whatever that would look like. You thought, uh, thought that I'd be married by now, or have a relationship, maybe thought I'd still be married by now. Thought that I'd have a different job, be in a different career, at least be further up the corporate ladder, that things just aren't what you had planned, and it seems like it's a bit of chaos, right? Even just this time of chaos, and the, even at our church, we had a family that has come down with the coronavirus. And so we've been reaching out to them and, and loving on them. They, they weren't here last Sunday, but, but just trying to see how can we reach out to them. And, and this isn't what they planned. This, this quarantine, this sickness isn't what they were anticipating for this time. And so when we look at this in the life of David going from chaos to Christ, uh, we see that he'll be going from the chaos of his life to clinging to God, in times clinging to God in the darkness of a cave when the man trying to kill him is pursuing him, that we can cling to Christ in the chaos of our life and, and the chaos of being stuck in a home in their quarantine or the chaos of not being in the job we want, the relationship, the health Whatever that looks like, that things just aren't working out like we had planned. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it to, to 1 Samuel 24. That's where we're going to be this week. This is, a, this is a story that I love. It is a story that uh, is a humorous story. It's a story that is an intriguing story. It's a story that makes you wonder, what was David thinking? And then stepping back saying, man, that guy's got great integrity. And then going back and thinking, what was he thinking? You know, and, and everything in between. We pick up on the story, David has this roller coaster of a life, right? He's been anointed king and then he goes back and watches the sheep. And then he goes to deliver breakfast and ends up fighting a giant and kills him and holds up his head. Then he ends up getting to marry the the king's daughter and comes into the royal court just for the king to now hate him and trying to kill him. Throwing spears at him in the royal court, chasing after him to the king's son, Jonathan, telling him, you have to flee. Dad's going to kill you. And so now David's been on the run. As we talked about, he's a fugitive. Uh, He's wanted. People gladly turn him in, and he's a fugitive on the run, worn out, scared, and struggling. He's met up with this group of guys, his, David's mighty men. Maybe you've heard that. If we look back in the scripture, we see that these guys are outcasts. These are the outlaws. This is like Robin Hood and his group of bandits. And so these guys are all uh, notoriously bad. These guys ha- have been kicked out of society for one reason or another for, for laws that they've broke. And so they're on David's side, hoping that David can overthrow the king and that they would get to go back home. So, this has got David's got this group of a ragtag, wild group of guys, and he's on the run. And Saul finds out where he's at. Saul has just come back from from a fight again with the Philistines. Again, the people of Israel did not wipe out the the land of Canaan of the Philistines. And so they're constantly fighting this battle because they weren't faithful long ago to God's plan. And so they're fighting the Philistines. And Saul comes back and he gets a word. We know where David is. We found him in En Gedi. Him and his men are hiding out out on the desert plains. And Saul quickly gathers his men. He gathers 3,000. 3,000 guys to go kill this one man, to go kill David. He knows that David's got his little crew of misfits, and so there's going to be a battle. So he grabs 3,000 men, and they pursue him to En Gedi. And so they're in this desert land, and, and as, na- as would happen, nature calls for, for everybody, even if you're the king of Israel, Right? And so the king of Israel sees some caves and he has an opportunity to have a private moment in a, in a restroom in these caves. And he tells the, the soldiers, he says, stay here, I gotta go take care of business. And he grabs the sports section and, and he heads out to the cave and to take care of what he needs to do, right? And that's where we pick up on the story is Saul going to this cave. But just so happens of all the caves in all the desert that he chooses to do his business, this is the one David's hiding out in right? If you haven't heard this story before, David and some of his men, these caves are massive. They're, they're big and, they, and they're winding and they're interconnecting and, and David happens to be in this one cave and you've kind of figured that they've been watching Saul and his troops and, and they know that they're getting close and so they decide, hey, let's hide. We're going to hide in these caves, hope they pass by and this is our only chance and so they hide and here comes Saul. They see Saul leaving his crew and coming up in his royal robes and, and coming up to the, to the cave. David I'm sure has men at the mouth of the cave that are spies on the lookout, and they see Saul coming, and they're like, what do we do? I don't know. And so they go, and they retreat to the back of the cave where David and a few of his choice men are, are sitting, and, and they tell him, David, Saul's coming. That's where we pick up. It says that the, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy to your hands for you to deal with as you wish. He tells him that Saul's coming to relieve himself here in the cave. He's going to be vulnerable. He won't have his weapons. He's not even going to have pants. And this is the time, right, to take him out. And so this is what God has lined this up for you to be able to take advantage of. This is our chance to, for you to be keen, for us to be free. We're finally going to get to go back to our families. We're finally going to get, get be right with society. David, here we go. What a perfect situation. What a perfect circumstance. I think the men saw, as we often do, when the circumstance seems to line up perfect, we assume this must be God. Right? We quickly make it that this is a, a, a theological thing that the circumstance has worked out, that God wanted us to do this. That, that God wanted this relationship. That he, it's an amazing coincidence. We both happen to be at, at this place at the same time. He wants us to get married, all right? That, that we line this up, that, that it just so happens that the day that I found a dollar, there, I walked into a gas station, and there's a lottery ticket that I could buy for a dollar. God wants me to do it, right? We line this stuff up, and, and I make fun of the, like the lottery ticket, but you know what I mean? That There's times that we say, this must be God. It's just as working out too good. It must be God. And so that's where the men find themselves as they're lining up that this must be God. Look at this situation. But so often we take circumstances and make it God's actions. And sometimes those don't match. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, we see Paul has been doing great work as his ministry, and he's been going from town to town and doing good ministry. And then he says that we're headed out to Asia. And it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phygaria and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word and the providence of Asia. They wanted to go. Paul knew this was his plan, but he says that earlier in the chapter that the Holy Spirit Persuaded him not to. The Holy Spirit stopped him. And so the circumstance for Paul was we need to keep going to Asia. Everything's working out great. Everyone's receiving the gospel. Why don't we keep going? But the Holy Spirit stopped him. Paul was listening to the Holy Spirit, not just looking at circumstances. And so often we look at the circumstance and we want to see that this must be God's, God's plan. But instead... What we need to be doing is saying, does this circumstance match up with what God's plan is that He's already told us? The Holy Spirit <laughs> told Paul to stop, and, and it'd be great. We say, oh man, I wish the Holy Spirit would just make it clear to us and tell us what to do. And oftentimes it does. Oftentimes we already have His Word, have His direction in the Bible. But instead of turning to scripture or turning to wise counsel, instead of turning into in prayer, we just assume, ah, oh, it all worked out. So it must be God's plan. And so that's where the men are here. They're not, they don't present this before God. They don't pray before God. They don't tell David, hey, let's turn to God and see if this is what he wants. They just assume this is God's plan because it works out really well. Something that I know I do, something I'm willing to guess you guys have been guilty of as well. We need to match God's plan, these circumstances. And sometimes God might work in circumstances, but we need to match those with what does God's word say? What does our prayer life say? What does God's wisdom say from godly people that he's put in our lives? Where does this all come together? So getting back into chapter 24, so here's Saul relieving himself in the cave. And here's David with a perfect chance to kill his nemesis to take over the throne, to be the king. All of David's men would follow him. And probably, honestly, if David went out with Saul's head in his hand, all of Saul's men would follow him as well, out of fear, at the very least. And so we pick it up. It says that David crept up unnoticed. So David makes the decision to approach Saul. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Picturing the scene, David's there and his men are rallying him on. And at one point, David makes a conscious decision to grab a dagger, to get up and approach Saul. He could have told the men, no, no, we're going to stay here. Let's just be quiet. Saul's going to leave. But I wonder if there wasn't a conflict a little bit in David's heart and David's mind as he grabs the dagger and he approaches Saul, possibly ready to take his life. And it says that the Lord told him he was convicted and so he gets close and he just cuts off a piece of the corner of the robe and retreats back to in the darkness of the cave, holding on. And he feels convicted that he even did that. I'm not sure he feels so bad that he cut the robe as much as he feels bad of, what was I about to do? Look how close I was to going off and taking plans into my own hands. Like I said, there's time when, when life seems chaos and it's not how you plan. It's so easy to want to be able to take it into our own hands. To be able to say, well, then let me take care of this. Let me figure out how to climb the corporate ladder. How many, let me figure out whatever it takes to be able to keep this relationship. Even though it's unhealthy, I'm willing to do it. That, way, that we take these steps into our own hands instead of turning to God. Instead of turning to him to follow his plan and having patience. For his plan. He comes back and the men are confused. Why would you do this, David? This was our chance. We had him. He's right there. We could have taken him out. Now we're just sitting in a, in a cave. And Saul, your enemy, is alive with his soldiers. And so they're confused. And some people would look at this story and see David and his passivity and and look at this and see that David was weak and look at this, that David was not willing to step up against his oppressor. And that's not a story and not a lesson that we're to take from this either. Because if there's times that you're being oppressed, if there's times that you're being abused, the answer isn't just to turn over and take it. Because we're going to see that's not what David does either. David confronts the sin. David confronts the sinner, and we're gonna see he confronts Saul and what Saul's been doing, but he doesn't pile on the sin by committing sins of his own, of murder. He doesn't get on board with with murdering and adding to the sin, because surely this would not have made the situation better. This is the first king of Israel. Saul is. And if David takes the throne by way of bloodshed, What kind of pattern is that going to set for generations to come? Is God going to honor that kind of kingship? Is God going to honor one that takes the throne by killing the the king before? We see in 1 Kings later on, we see in 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, that God does not honor this. Zimri becomes the king of Israel because he goes and he takes the life of the king before him. And within seven days, Zimri is overthrown and dies in a fire that he sets in the palace trying to, to fight off the, uh, the attack. God does not honor that kind of rising to the power. God does not honor taking it in his own hands as Zimri did. And so David is willing to wait. As hard as that is, he's willing to wait on God's timing. We're going to see, though, he addresses the sin of Saul. And verse 8 says Then David went out to the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground. So picture this, like it's a funny story, right? Saul's been in this, in this cave taking care of business and he comes out and he looks at, back and here's David and a whole group of soldiers chilling in the cave that he just took care of everything in, right? He said, said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own hands how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hands on, the, on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. It continues on. It says, see my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you have hunted me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the saying goes, from evil doers comes evil deeds, so my hands will not touch you. He doesn't allow Saul to continue uh, unnoticed in his sin. He doesn't allow the abuser to continue to the abuse, but he also doesn't add to the sin. He doesn't add to the evil. He says, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my case and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. It's easy for us to think that ends justify the means. That, yeah, this, this doesn't seem right, but in the long run, it's better. That we are so quick to kind of justify everything, though, find ways to get around it. That it might be wrong, but it's worth it. That, that we, we get these ideas that, that uh, everyone else is doing it, and so there's no way to get to the promotion without cutting corners, without fixing the books, without doing this or that to be able to get that promotion, and so we give in. That we think, they're making so much money off of me anyways, what's it hurt if I, if I cut, my, cut the corners on my taxes, if I fudge the numbers just a little bit? That we sit here and think of these time, things that we, what if we just fudge the time sheet the boss doesn't really know and I work so hard for him anyways? We're trying to make it into our own hands instead of trusting in God's plan. And that's hard. I don't know about you, but I know it's hard for me. I met with someone this week, and I was talking to him about what today's passage was on, about waiting on God, and he said, oh, it's a message I'm going to need to hear. (laughs) And I said, it's a message I need to hear as well. Because waiting on God's hard. Waiting on God takes patience. But maybe it's because we look at waiting as as two different kinds of waiting. There's the kind of waiting that no one actually likes waiting, right? When you're at the store, and, and you look, and there's all the rows of checkouts and and no one says hey that guy has a whole lot in his his cart and the checkout person doesn't seem quite with it I'm going to get in that lane right no one says that that they want to wait longer we all want to make it as quick as we can but sometimes when we're waiting we need to realize that this is where God has us and I'm not just talking about like the waiting like when you're at a store there's the inactive waiting where I'm just standing there not doing anything I got my cart full. There's nothing I can do. That kind of waiting, that stinks, right? But sometimes there's the waiting that is active waiting. There's the waiting that when you're waiting for for something that you're actively doing. For example, when I go to Blackbird Bakery, I got a picture of my daughter. This is last year when we adopted her. This is any. This is how I feel every time we go to Blackbird, right? Then I'm just in awe. And I would consider this is active waiting because I'm there waiting in the line and I'm looking at everything that they have. I'm wondering what it tastes like. I'm trying to see what flavor it is. I'm looking at what the people around me have ordered. Uh, I'm counting the people before in front of me so I can count down and know how long it is before I get up there. I'm looking for my kids, our whole family's there. We got four kids, three of them I can find. One's loose. I don't know where, but I'm not getting out of line. And so I just, I send Sarah and I'm like, hey, go find them, all right? And so, and we hope that they're doing okay. But uh, we're not getting out of line here. And I'm actively like looking for my kids, looking, trying to figure out what I want, watching everything, trying to figure out, do we want coffee, ice cream, pastry? And I finally get up and they say, what would you like? And I'd be like, all of it, right? And this is my dream. And as any, just one of each of those, I'm actively waiting. Blackbird never seems to take as long as, as the grocery store because I'm doing something. Because I'm looking at all of it, because I'm, I'm watching the people, because I'm trying to see what am I going to have, and I'm anticipating. I'm excited. I'm actively waiting. This is what David was doing. He was actively waiting. When we think about this time between when he was anointed and when he comes king, right? We think, man, it took so long and how horrible would that be that he's just waiting and he's being chased by Saul and, and he's going through these valleys and the ups and downs and he's a, a fugitive and he's with these guys that are crazy and, and it's this wild time. But during this time of the 75 Psalms that's attributed to David, he wrote 37 of them. This time... This time he was growing closer to the Lord. This time he was learning to trust in God. This is time that he was actively learning how to rely on the Lord. So when he was king, he would come to the Lord in every situation. This is a time that God had him waiting for a reason so he could be a better king. And he was actively waiting. This is what we need to be doing as we're waiting on God's plan. That we're in this situation, like I said at the beginning, that this isn't the life you expected and and you you would like to take it into our own hands to fix it. And sometimes we need to realize this is where God wants us right now. As we actively wait. As we draw closer to the Lord to get through these hard times. To get through these chaotic times right now that we're in. That the nation's in turmoil and, and there's this virus all around and it's this wild time. It's A lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of unknown. Maybe this is time that we need to learn to just trust in God. That we need to learn to have patience. Not have a spirit of fear, but have a spirit of trust in the Lord. The passage continues, uh, verse 16 says, When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have, just told, you have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be keen, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul... Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I'd love to say that the story ends here, that there's peace between the two. But Saul goes back on his word, and he pursues David again, and he tries to kill David again. But that continues to be time of wait for David. That David continues to grow in this time. That David even writes these psalms, like Psalm 57. The, the subscript, the, the opening script for this psalm says, For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. So if any of you guys know that song, just go ahead and play that in your mind. I, I don't know what that is. It's, you know, 3,000 years old. Uh, of David. Um, but you could use Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, because that works for almost everything. All right? Uh, it says, When he fled from Saul into the cave. So David writes this when he's on the run. David writes this when he hears that Saul has gathered 3,000 men and he's coming to get you. David writes this after he's been in, in, the, in, the, in the temple of Nob and, and eaten the consecrated bread as the only nourishment that he has and he goes out on the run again and he's hiding in a cave and he grabs a script, he grabs a pen and so, a and so scroll and he begins to write this down. He says, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For it is you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadows of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends me from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of turmoil, his answer is to turn to God and just say, God, be with me. In the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our anxiety, our answer is to turn to God and say, God, be with me. He's writing this in the darkness of a cave when Saul's coming to kill him. His answer isn't, kill my enemy. His answer is, God, be with me. Be my refuge. Have mercy on me. We see this idea of patience. And this idea that we need to pursue following God's timing. And that we need to be in this time of waiting. Realize that maybe this is what God's put us at right now for a reason. To make us who he wants us to be. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this, that he who has begun good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a good work being done in you. In me. And God is working. We might see the goal that we're trying to get to. We might see what we want. But God is working on us before we get there. As the old saying goes, it's not about the destination sometimes, but about the journey. During that journey is when God is molding us. During that journey of hardship is when God is crafting in us patience and endurance and trust. During that journey, this time of chaos and fear... God is putting in us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of confidence in him, a spirit of love. And in that cave, to all those men, David set an example to trust in God's time. To those men, they learned that story, and those men would end up fighting with him. Those men would end up following him. Those men would end up being set free and coming back to their families when David is vindicated and becomes king. But they learned a lesson And trusting in God. We learn a lesson in trusting in God. Because of this story, the example David set. There's a story about a man, he's called the Napkin Dad. His name is Garth Callahan, and maybe you've heard about him. But Garth came down with a diagnosis of cancer. And it looked like he wasn't going to live, and he's got a 14-year-old daughter. And, and up to this point, he had often written notes <clears throat> uh, in his, when he'd make his daughter's lunchbox and put these notes of, I love you, you know, have a great day, love, Dad, and put it in there. He didn't know how much longer he'd live. And so Garth began to write inspirational notes on napkins. He ended up writing 826 napkins because he counted out how many days left his daughter had of school. And when asked about it, he said, at the end of the day, these notes might be the only thing that my daughter has left of me. He left something for her. We are leaving something for those around you that are following. Those you work with are learning about your reliance in God, on your integrity and your patience. Those people in your home, kids, spouse, roommates, neighbors, they're learning about how you live. The example you set. But what we trust in God, that we're trusting in his, in his plan instead of trying to take it into our own hands. We are setting an example. We are leaving something behind. As Garth did for his daughter, we are for the people that know you. So the question is, what example do we want to set? In the midst of chaos, are we turning to Christ. In the midst of this time when we're in a cave, can we do what David does? And he writes Psalm 57. The, the psalm ends, 57, verse 7 through 11. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing and make music. He's being pursued. He's, someone's trying to kill him. His final days might be here. He's got this group of crazy men that, that he's responsible for, and they all might get murdered because it's 3,000 to 500. And so they're being pursued, and in the midst of that, he says, I will sing and make music. He says, awake, my soul, awake, harp and lair. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of fear, he's singing and he's praising. For, and he says, for great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the midst of all this, in the midst of the craziness uh, his life is, in the midst of the running of the chance of dying, his desire is to praise God. So as we close out the service, I thought nothing better than to close out with that psalm and transition into us. If you'll stand with us, and in the midst of the chaos that you're living in, in the midst of the chaos of these times, in the midst of a story that you have that that would probably break my heart if I knew, of the disappointment or the confusion you have of you're not where you expected to be, in the midst of needing to wait on God, let us sing praises. In the midst of having to wait, let us sing how great is your love reaching to the heavens. In the midst of the chaos, I hope we can proclaim, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory fill over all the earth. If you'll pray with me. God, we just pray this we Psalm. Pray. We pray that we can follow you and turn to you. God, in the midst of the chaos, God, in the midst of times that we want to take into our own hands, our own hands, let us be patient. As hard as that is, let us be waiting, actively waiting, actively in pursuing you, actively studying what you are wanting to teach us, actively reading your word, actively coming to you before or in prayer, actively presenting what we're waiting on before you, but waiting. God, in the midst of that weight, let us be able to sing and make music. Let us be able to say, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of, you or sing of you among the people. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth.